Let me pray and then we'll dive in. Father, I thank you so much for this time of year. Uh, It just kind of gives us the opportunity to remember and to appreciate that you, our God, came to live among us and to redeem us. That you, our God, didn't just send someone else to help us out, but you yourself came as our deliverer. And you are our hope, and you are our peace, and you are our life. And it's all because of this story that we remember this time of year. And so, Father, as we remember it this morning, I pray that you would teach us and that you would afresh stir within us a longing for you and to know you and to look forward to your return again someday. Amen. So if you're not in Isaiah, go ahead and turn there. That's where we're going to be. It is page nine, uh, 523 in, in this um, Bible. 523. Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 9. When my sister and I, my oldest sister and I, were attending Biola University in Southern California, every holiday, Easter and Christmas, we it was a conspired together again. How could we as poor college students uh, scrape together enough money or work it out so that we could be home for the holidays, for Easter and Christmas when we had you know, at least a week to two week break. And we would, so we would search out, you know, the bulletin boards at college and find out who was coming up to Washington and, and how much it would cost. And, and often it would just come down to the last minute, you know, to where, and it was fun because a couple of times we would arrive late at night after our parents were in bed, they didn't know we were coming home, or we would arrive and we would sit in the back. My dad was a pastor also, and we would sit in the back of the auditorium and uh, and my parents would discover us that we had come home at that time. um, So there was just this constant, it's it's interesting, and here we are, you know, independent college students away from home, and you'd think, ah, great. But there was this constant longing to be home, you know, just that we wanted to be home for the holidays. I guarantee you it had nothing to do with the long drive that we loved um, that resulted in a lot of adventures. Um, one winter we had to stay overnight in Weed, California. Any of you have been there? <laughs> the I-5 was closed. Uh, another night uh, coming out of Rose, another holiday Christmas coming home just north of Roseburg, Oregon, hit black ice flipped over. Um, we made it home on the last flight going out of Portland. I mean, is this, I mean, 
a lot of adventures, but still this drive to want to be home. It wasn't the rain that attracted us, you know, out of sunny California, although I do enjoy the rain, but this longing to be home. Um, And I know we're all different. Some of us have had horrible homes, and there's not that longing to be home. But for all of us, I think there's different longings, aren't there? Uh, Maybe for some of us, it's just a longing to be in relationship. Or a longing um, for love. I think maybe some it's a longing that things would be made right or that we'd be vindicated. Um, A longing for justice. Longing is just part of who we are that stirs within us. And like Daniel already shared as he tried to steal my thunder a little bit ago. (laughs) That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And I love, I mean, one of my favorite Christmas songs, probably my favorite Christmas song is O Holy Night. And that phrase that says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. That word pining, you know, it's just that, it's like hope is seeping away, but that that longing is still there. And and it captures so well this longing that we're going to talk about this morning. This, it's it's kind of a combination of a longing for home, <laughs> because God made us for Himself, and and a longing for God, and 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 it's all throughout the Old Testament, and it's all throughout the New Testament too, as we, as there's that longing again for His second coming. Um. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth until we, when he appeared, realized this is what it's about. (laughs) This is who we are. This is whose we are. And, And as kind of the first sermon in this in in this advent series if you don't get anything else if you kind of start dozing off i want you to get get that that i want us to have created within us this morning a fresh longing for him okay and that christmas that this christmas time would do that because sometimes christmas is a horrible time i mean i i've grown up much of my life hating christmas because i've struggled so much with the commercialism of it and my poor wife has put up with all kinds of things from me, you know, we're not going to have a Christmas tree this year and we're going to boycott Christmas presents this year. And just because it can be so, such becomes, end up being such a busy, hectic, horrible time of year, like, oh, thank God Christmas is over, you know? But it doesn't need to be that. And, And I hope that this morning, that as we begin this Sunday after Thanksgiving, that it would stir within you that the next four weeks leading up to Christmas could be just this wonderful time of longing, like longing to remember, wow, what it would be like if Jesus had not come. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. And as we're going to look at Isaiah 9 this morning, a longing to remember and a longing to remember the difference that happened to the world and, and the longing to that, that that would be fresh in our lives, a longing to know him and a longing to remember that we're his and, and a longing then for his second return. 
that he will come again and that we'll be ready for him. So a longing. I kind of maybe like a childlike longing that um, um, and maybe some of you are still that way, you know, to where uh, it's Christmas Eve and and you can hardly wait till Christmas morning. How many of your families did stockings? Or, you know, okay. And, and uh, to where you wake up the next morning and, and the stockings are going to be there, the presents are going to be there, that there would be that same fresh, childlike longing for Jesus <laughs> because of this Christmas season. Um, and, and, and I think in a fresh way, as I've come to realize that longing, that, that we can enjoy the whole thing. <laughs> you know, we can just enjoy the whole thing and all the festivities and all the music and all the lights and, all the, and everything because, it, you know, whatever anybody else is doing with it, for us, it just reminds us, this is Christmas. <laughs> and this is about Jesus and that he's come and that he's coming again. Um, so look at Isaiah chapter 9 with me, if you would, and, and, and it's this longing that we're looking at. As we come to Isaiah chapter 9, it captures through the lens of the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. You notice there in verse 1, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. And as we come into this account here, it, 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 it sees through the lens of these two regions. Actually, can you put up that map, please? The, um, if you notice, this is um, here's Naphtali and Zebulun. They're two tribes of Israel, and they were at the northernmost border of Israel. And, and I and I wanted you to to see that because as we come to this humiliation that is theirs. It's theirs because at the northernmost, being at the northernmost tribe of Israel, they were like the, you know, the beating ground. <laughs> they were right there. The Syrians were just to the north of them, and then to the north of the Syrians, a little farther north, were the Assyrians. And Israel's history was, and, and its humiliation and its bondage were captured by these two tribes. And that's why they're highlighted in Isaiah chapter 9. Just to give you an example, under the reign of, and I don't know if this guy's name is pronounced correctly, Menahem, the king of Israel, kind of towards the end of Israel's history, um, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, swept down from the north and uh, invaded the land of Israel. And every time, I want you to understand, whether it was the Syrians or the Assyrians, the Babylonians after that, they all had to pass through the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so Zebulun and Naphtali became this, this, this land that was just constantly just beat down and, 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 and under bondage and, and invaded by foreign invaders. So Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, he passes through, goes right through the land, and um, in order to get rid of him, Menahem gives him, and get this, if you look back at 2 Kings 15, 37 tons of silver in 2 Kings chapter 15. Gives this king of Assyria 37 tons of silver. I, I'd be happy with a ton. In order to get him to leave the country. And so he does. But under Pekah, P-E-K-A-H, the next king of Assyria, because Israel isn't abiding by the agreement that they made with 
Tiglath-Pileser, under the next king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser sweeps in again into the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and, in fact, takes the whole region of those two tribes back into captivity into Assyria. Under the next king, Hoshea, the next king of Assyria, Shalmaneser is his name, he sweeps down in and uh, puts a tax on the, on the land of Israel again. And then he leaves. But under Hoshea, for nine years, for three years, they pay their taxes and they quit paying their taxes to Assyria. And then in the sixth year, Shalmaneser comes back in again. For three years, he um, sieges the, the, the capital of Samaria and then finally conquers Israel and deports the whole nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, into captivity into Assyria. Since the times of the judges, the, the, the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali were like this stomping ground for foreign invaders. And so notice the way it's described. If you understand that little scenario, it's kind of like, as I was trying to understand it, it'd be kind of like living in, in some countries in Africa today. <laughs> Uh, where there's just this, whether it's Sudan or, you know, the, where there's just this constant warfare and your your neighborhood, your the area of the country where you live is just constantly being overrun and constantly being beat down and constantly being raped and pillaged. And, and what would you begin to think as a people at that point? I mean, there'd just be absolute despair. I mean, just... I mean, it's like your neighborhood just begins to be rebuilt, and then, but you know that it's not going to be long before the foreign invaders come in again, and they're just going to wipe you out again. And so we see the, the description in verse 2. It says, uh, the people who walk in darkness. And then the phrase below that, those who live in a land of deep darkness. And in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, it says, in a land where death casts its shadow. And that's actually the translation that appears then in the New Testament in the fulfillment in Matthew chapter 4. And so that's Zebulun and Naphtali. It's just this, this land where it's, it was just a land full of darkness and despair and hopelessness. A land where death casts its shadow. Can you relate to that at all? I mean, it, I think it's, if we lived in some countries, we'd be able to understand that. Maybe, maybe Beirut a few years ago, or Sudan today, or uh, Iraq. or I mean, there's so many countries of the world. Just this deep despair. Well, that's how it was in Zebulun and Naphtali at the time. But then there's this hope. I want you to look, look back at verse 1. There's this hope. In the face of this humiliation and this darkness, this land where death casts its shadow, notice it says, But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. And this is a description of that land. It will be filled with glory. And just simply... When it talks about glory there, I think it's, it's talking about it'll be filled with a revelation of God. 
God's glory is a revelation of who he is. And I think this land, in the midst of its deep despair, there's this promise that someday this land of deep darkness where death casts its shadow is going to be a land where God is going to reveal himself. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And the word light, a great light, a light will shine, is the imagery of hope. Someday this land of deep despair, this land of slavery and death, will someday be a land where God himself will reveal himself and there will be hope. Notice, he says, you will enlarge the nation of Israel. Its people will rejoice. They're going to rejoice like people after a harvest or after a victory and battle has happened and people are sharing in the plunder where the heavy burden of, of slavery will be broken where God will reveal himself and there be hope. What is the hope? For a child will be born to us and a son will be given and the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those four designations, just each one of them is, is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 1, 24 Christ is called the wisdom of God. Wonderful counselor. In John 8, 58, mighty God, Jesus in response to the questioning of the religious leaders says, before Abraham was born, I am. And he was saying, I am Jehovah, I am Yahweh, I am mighty God. In Revelation 1, 17, Jesus in a vision speaking to John on the island of Patmos says, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the eternal Father. And in Ephesians 2, Jesus says, He himself is our peace. Now what I want you to get, what I want you to see just from this quick little scenario is that in the midst of deep despair there's this messianic hope that is given to this land. And what would that stir within them? Longing, right? Longing. Longing that, wow, when will this happen? When will it come? When will it, ha- when will it, when will it take place? And what it did and what it should have done with them is stir within them a longing that went way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after Adam and Eve sinned against God. They believed the serpent. And they sinned and they, and they ate of the fruit and they were separated from God. God, in his grace, gave the first messianic promise. And hope for the first time was, 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 was planted in their hearts. Right after they'd blown it, they're separated from God. They're about ready to get kicked out of the garden. God gives them a promise. And the promise is that someday the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent that had deceived them and led them into sin and separation from God. And, and so the longing began. And and as we look through Israel's history, there's this constant longing. In fact, in in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, I think that Eve thought the the longing was fulfilled immediately as she gives birth to Cain. And as soon as she gives birth to Cain, she says, I've given birth to a man, the Lord. I think that's the correct translation. But he wasn't. 
he, he killed Abel and, and was cursed by God. And yet, as we look through the Old Testament, there's that constant longing then, when will he come? When will the seed of the woman come who will crush the head of the serpent who deceived us and led to our separation from God and, and this darkness, this despair, this hopelessness that our world is in. And so the history of Israel is this constant longing or pining. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 23, we see the Israelites groaning under the slavery of the Egyptians in Egypt. In Judges 4, and, and all through the book of Judges, we see this cycle of groaning of the children of Israel in their own land that God had brought them into, and yet in their sin, they, they, God would subject them to to adversaries, to enemies who would oppress them and, and, and they'd be miserable. And then what would they They'd groan. They'd cry out to God again. It's this constant cycle of, God, okay, we've sinned and, and God, now we realize we need you. And God, when are you going to come? Obviously, Israel needed something more than military deliverance. <laughs> I mean, we see that. If you haven't read the book of Judges, I'd encourage you to read it just as time after time after time after time they go through this cycle of of enjoying god's rest and then forgetting that it was god and 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 sinning against god and and god sending an adversary an enemy who would who would oppress them and and would cause them again to long for god and say oh god where are you god we need you god help almost begins to sound like our stories doesn't it And then that fresh longing, God, we need you. Listen to this this Christmas carol. I think it expresses it. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou rod of Jesse, Free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the gray or the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And if you don't know, Emmanuel means God with us. O come thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. In, um, in the Passover celebration, in Hebrew it's called the Pesach, there are these same songs. In fact, I, I wrote down a couple of them here. In the Hebrew Passover celebration. Um, these are two songs that are sung every year by Jewish people um, as they're looking forward and longing for this Messiah. The first song is called Elijah the Prophet, and it says, and, and right after the fourth cup of the Passover is poured and the door is opened, uh, the door of the house is opened in hopes that The prophet Elijah will come and announce that the Messiah has come. They sing this song. Do you want me to sing it in Hebrew? No, I'll just... It says, Elijah the prophet, 
Elijah the Tishbite, Elijah, Elijah, Elijah the Gileadite, speedily and in our days come to us with the Messiah, son of David, with the Messiah, son of David. That longing, when is he going to come? And then there's another one, it's one with a little bit more catchy tune that expresses the Jewish people's hope that the Messianic age will come soon. And it says, He is mighty, He is mighty, speaking of the Messiah, speedily, speedily, and in our days soon, God rebuild, God rebuild the temple, rebuild your house soon. He's distinguished, He is great, He is exalted, He is glorious, He is faithful, He is faultless, He is righteous, He is pure, He is unique, He is powerful, He is wise, He is king, He is awesome. He is sublime. He is all-powerful. He's the Redeemer. He's all-righteous. He's holy. He's compassionate. He's almighty. He's omnipotent. May he soon rebuild his house. Speedily, speedily, and in our days soon. God rebuild. God rebuild. Rebuild your house soon. And so the, the longing of the Jewish people... for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that he would come. Not a long time long, isn't it? And then he came. Turn with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. He came. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. And this is the, this is the quotation of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, page 735. In this Bible, 735. Matthew four twelve. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea, returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth and then left there and moved to Capernaum, Beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Actually, can you put up the next? The, uh, and this is the next, uh, this is the next slide. And I want you to see there where the previous, see this is where Syria, and then this is in the, the Old Testament, this was the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which is now, this is kind of right here, it's the land of Galilee. It's where G, you look at all these Nazareth, Cana, Capernaum. I mean, these are all names that are familiar to us in the New Testament where Jesus hung out and spent most of his ministry. So this is where Jesus is. He returns to Galilee. He comes to this land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And in verse 14 it says, This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. In the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, beside the sea, beside Beyond the Jordan River in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. For those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has dawned. He came. I mean, the longing of hundreds of years, I mean, thousands of years going way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, but hundreds of years, maybe about 600 years since Isaiah made his prophecy in the midst of the despair and darkness and death of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the hope 
that God himself would come as their redeemer, their deliverer. He came in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. If you turn with me to John, there's just some, John chapter 1, page 809. John chapter 1, page 809. In the beginning, the Word, this is chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought, and this is what I want you to see, what it, it brought light to everyone, hope. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light. This is a prophecy about Jesus, the hope that God Himself would come, about the light so that everyone might believe Because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light. Who gives light to everyone. Coming into the world. What the people of Israel had been longing for. For hundreds of years. In the person of Jesus. Drop down to verse 14. So the word. Became a human being. And made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. That's exactly the hope that was given in Isaiah chapter 9, that God himself, his glory would fill that land and his hope would come in his own person. And so he did. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me, to bring good news to the poor, proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. And after he said that, out of Isaiah chapter 61, Jesus said, today this scripture is fulfilled. And as Jesus walked the streets of Galilee, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, that land where before had just been darkness and despair and death. What do we see? We see lepers healed, blind given sight, the lame walked, outcasts were restored, tormented were delivered, the condemned were forgiven, grieving were comforted, despairing were given hope, enemies were reconciled, and people felt their worth. <laughs> In the land where, where there was just sin and error pining, God himself, the promised Messiah, appeared, and the soul of those people in Zebulun and Naphtali felt their worth. God himself came to transfer them from the kingdom of darkness, from darkness, and offer them hope. But I want, before we conclude, I want you to to realize one thing, though, that's important. When you think, after those years of longing, and then he appears, everybody would be excited, right? But what happened? 
what happened. In Matthew chapter 2, some wise men show up looking for some foreigners from Persia show up in Jerusalem looking for, after they'd been searching for and longing for, this messianic hope. They show up in Jerusalem and they ask King Herod and the chief priests, where is he? Where is he? This one that you've been looking for, this one that the world's been pining for, where is he? And what happens? The chief priests, well, they look back into, my, they look back into the book of Micah in the Old Testament and they say, well, this is where he's supposed to be, in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. And they give them directions on where to go and the wise men go looking for him these foreigners longing for him and they find him and they worship him. But did it ever strike you as kind of funny that the religious leaders never did? Some. I mean, after these foreigners show up looking for this messianic hope that would turn their despair into hope, the religious leaders don't take the time to go look for him themselves. It's, it's it's stunning to me. You're right. And so we read the same thing in John chapter 1. It was a verse that I skipped when I was reading earlier. In verse 10, it says, He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. So what's the problem? I mean, after these hundreds of years of longing and waiting for the glory of God to bring hope to the world, God himself to come. And as I thought about it, there's two things that I want to leave with you. I think the first thing is that created the longing. There's two things that create the longing. The one is the deep darkness and despair. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. There's not going to be longing unless there's despair, right? Unless unless we're we recognize our neediness and our lack, we're not going to long for something. We're going to be satisfied with what we have. And that was the way it was with Israel. There was this, there was this deep despair. There was this, they, those who recognized the Messiah when he came recognized him because, number one, they realized their deep despair, and then, number two, they realized the height of the hope that had arrived. And I think that's why Jesus was accepted by some and rejected by others when he came despite the hundreds of years long is the sinners who accepted him and recognized him as the Messiah were daily living in Roman darkness. I mean, they were miserable. Again, one more time, the nation of it, the land of Israel was enslaved and this time it was by a Roman conqueror. And the, and the poor people and the, and the quote-unquote sinners, the, the tax collectors that were kind of traitors to their own countries and making a living out of Rome and the, and the prostitutes and the sinners 
that were attracted to Jesus and were called his friends, they were living in the thick of Roman darkness and its despair and its hopelessness, and they knew their need. (laughs) And when he came, their longing was satisfied. Their soul felt his worth when he appeared. It's like, here he is, and we need him. But how was it for the religious people? I think they'd lost their, their, the, their, the sight of their need. They kind of worked out a nice little balance when, with the Roman occup, um, taskmasters, the Roman Empire, where Rome allowed them to have their little positions of power, their little positions and religious positions, kind of... And so they could have their importance and they could have their religious positions. They could be comfortable in the midst of Roman slavery so that when the Messiah himself came, what was he? He wasn't to them an answer to their need, but he was a threat to their position. And so they rejected him. Religion was good enough for them, to put it in modern-day terms. (laughs) For them, it made things bearable. But for us, I hope it doesn't. Or anything else that 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 we've brought into our lives or that we've accepted as something that makes the the sin and the despair and the hopelessness of the world bearable. Isn't that what we do a lot of time? We're kind of like Israel in their cycle over and over and over again. In the midst of their slavery, they, in the midst of their despair, in the midst of, they, they, would, they would ask for deliver when they should have been longing for the Messiah. All they wanted was some temporary deliverance, right? And then they were okay, and, and then they went back and, until... And, and they just went through this cycle. Is, is, is that the way it is with us? As we're in the midst of this world, and, and, and the world we live in, it's really not much different than Zebulun and Naphtali. I mean, we're not overrun like some countries are by foreign aggressors, by enemies, but boy, we're overrun in other ways <laughs> to where we settle for things that'll just get us by today, make us happy today, give us temporary deliverance today instead of longing for the Messiah. If we learn one thing from this story, I want us to, to learn that we can't be satisfied with temporary deliverances. But the longing that God has created in our hearts for him, the longing that the Jewish people had for years, that we would have that same longing ourselves and that Christmas this year would restore that longing within us. I'm reading a book right now called The Irresistible Revolution, and I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's challenging me uh, in a lot of ways. But I want you to listen to this little quote. This guy says, Tony Campolo, doesn't matter that you know who he is, used to say, even if there were no heaven and there were no hell, would you still follow Jesus? 
Think about it. If there were no heaven and no hell, would you still follow Jesus? Would you follow him for the life, the joy, and the fulfillment he gives you right now? And this guy's response is, I am more and more convinced each day that I would. And, you know, I used to say the same thing. Like, you know, it's, it's just enough to know Jesus now. To get through today. To be a good person today. To do good for people today. I mean, that's, isn't that what it's all about? Well, it's not what Paul thinks in 1 Corinthians. Listen to what Paul says. If our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone else in the world. And so he goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, 32 to say, if there's no resurrection, if there's no heaven, then we should just eat and drink and feast and have a great time because tomorrow we die and that's it. In other words, what Paul is saying and and what I want us to get as I conclude here is that if there's no eternal longing to be with Jesus, then Paul would ask you, then do you really have real life in Jesus? See, all through those years of longing for the Messiah, what we really find out about the Jewish people is that it wasn't really the Messiah that they were longing for. It was just to get through the current problem. Just another deliver to get them through this problem so that they could enjoy life without the Messiah. In Romans eight nineteen through 23, and I, I, I'm not going to read them, but I'd encourage you to read them. It talks about how all creation groans. Right now, it says, it talks about like all creation is groaning because of the curse and because of sin, longing for and looking for creation itself. And, and Paul says, so we in the same way should groan and long for the time when Jesus would come back, that we'd be with him. That's what we were made for. We were made for him. He's our hope. Not just being good people, doing good things, trying to make the most of life, but it's for him that we were created. And that's why he came, and that's why he's coming again, because he made us in his image to be in relationship with him. And life and joy and true hope will only happen in relationship with him. And that will only happen when he comes back, ultimately. That's what we want to be with him. Isn't that what we want to be with? It's almost like me settling for when my wife leaves this week to go to, go to Colorado to visit our son um, in Colorado. It's almost like me being happy when she's in Colorado to say, well, you know what? You know, if you just keep calling me and write once in a while, then I'd be happy. Isn't that the way it almost is, the way we function? That I don't long for and look forward to when she's going to come back on Saturday night? But it's like, you know, just call me when you can. That'd be great, and and keep writing. But it's that, it's her that I want to be with, not just the phone calls and the letters, but it's her and it's Jesus that we want to be with. And it's that longing then that 
leads us to live lives, holy lives, lives that would be pleasing to him. Not lives that say, oh, who gives a hell about what's going on right now because I just want to be with Jesus someday. But wanting to be with Jesus in a way that it leads me to want to please him and live for him, but I want to be with him. The Jewish people missed out on that. They missed out on the coming of their Messiah. And those two songs that I quoted for you, they're still singing those every year as they celebrate the Pesach, the Passover. Longing for the Messiah that already came. And I, I, I wouldn't want that to be the way it is with some of us here this morning. Because he said he's coming again. The one who came 2,000 years ago and that we're celebrating today is coming again. And all creation groans and longs and pines for him because we were made for him. That life would be in him. But are you going to be ready when he comes back? Are you longing for his appearing? One more verse in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says, Now the prize awaits me. He was about ready to die. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. That's who the prize of heaven is for. For those of us who eagerly are looking forward to his appearing. I mean, why should it be anything else? If we're not looking forward to and longing to be with Jesus, then why would we want to be in heaven? Because heaven's going to be about Jesus. And if we're not looking forward to heaven with Jesus, then maybe we don't know Jesus. Like the Jews who longed for the Messiah, but they were just looking for a temporary deliverance. It's the only way our souls can truly know their worth. So don't constantly, especially during this time of year, try to busy out that longing, that soul longing. Buy it out, drown it out, squash it out. All the ways we try to squash out or drown out or buy out that longing within us, it can only be satisfied by him. Our hope must be in him. He's the only one that can satisfy our longing. Let's pray. Father, We live in a world that we have learned so many ways to squelch the longing within us, the longing that you created within us for yourself that can only be satisfied by you. Father, I pray that you would put within us the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 42, who said, as a deer longs for the streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O God. God, I pray that this Christmas season you would rekindle within us a longing for Jesus, to know Jesus, to find our satisfaction in Jesus, 
our Messiah, our Savior, our Redeemer. Amen.